7 a.m. at the Clackamas County Courthouse in Oregon City. The Feet to the Fire campaign is part of a national campaign started by Protect Our Stolen Treasures out of Detroit. This peaceful protest happens every month outside a different county courthouse and calls for justice for those lost to police violence and hate crimes. Again, that's Feet to the Fire campaign and protest, Wednesday, August 28th at 11 a.m. at the Clackamas County Courthouse, 807 Main Street in Oregon City. More information can be found at kboo.fm on the right side of the homepage under Community Events. This is KBOO Portland. Welcome to Sojourner True. Thank you for staying with us. This is your host, Margaret Prescott. Today, Gendered Resistance, Women's Slavery and the Legacy of Margaret Garner, a collection of stories inspired by the escaped slave Margaret Garner, who killed her own daughter rather than have her returned to slavery. We speak with Professor of History at Miami University in Ohio, Mary Fredrickson. We live in a global world. We're all interrelated. So on Sojourner Truth, we work to bring directly to you news and views on local, national, and international policies and stories that affect us all. And we draw out how those of us most impacted women, communities of color, and other communities are responding. We also discuss the interrelationship between art and politics. Now for our news headlines. For Pacifica Radio, I'm Eileen Alfandari. Democratic presidential candidate Bernie Sanders has released a $16.3 trillion climate plan that builds on the Green New Deal. It calls for the U.S. to move to renewable energy across the economy by 2050 and declare climate change a national emergency. While Sanders had already endorsed the concept of a Green New Deal and had teamed up with New York Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez on climate legislation, this climate plan provides the most detailed plan yet from one of the leading Democratic presidential contenders. Sanders described his plan as a 10-year nationwide mobilization centered on equity and humanity that would create 20 million new jobs. Among the bullet points, sourcing 100% of the country's electricity from renewable and zero emissions power. He's calling for committing more than $2 trillion in grants for low- and middle-income families to weatherize and retrofit their homes and businesses with the goal of reducing residential energy consumption by 30%. He would charge the Energy Department with making sure that both new and existing commercial structures, as well as high-income homeowners, meet his administration's energy retrofitting goals. Sanders is also calling for an overhaul of the nation's transportation system by investing in electric vehicles, high-speed rail, and expanded public transit. In the plan, Sanders notes that communities of color are disproportionately affected by the climate emergency. He says the Green New Deal is an opportunity to uproot historical injustices and inequities to advance social, racial, and economic justice. Sanders' announcement comes as the Democratic National Committee meets in San Francisco today. Climate justice activists are urging the DNC to back a resolution calling for an entire Democratic presidential debate devoted to the climate emergency. Washington Governor Jay Inslee ended his climate-changed-focused 2020 Democratic presidential bid. He spoke on MSNBC. It's become clear that I'm not going to be carrying the ball. I'm not going to be the president, so I'm withdrawing tonight from the race. But I have to tell you, look, I've been fighting climate change for 25 years, mm -hmm. and I've never been so confident of the ability of America now to meet critical mass to move the ball. I believe we are going to have a candidate to fight this battle. I'm inspired of the people I've met across the country, the young people in the Sunrise Movement and the climate strikers. These people have given me confidence we can move ahead. Inslee is expected to announce today he'll seek a third term as governor. He becomes the third Democrat to end his presidential bid after Democratic Congressman Eric Swalwell of California and Colorado Governor John Hickenlooper. President Trump doubled down on his description of Jews who vote for Democrats as disloyal, despite widespread criticism. In my opinion, you vote for a Democrat, you're being very disloyal to Jewish people, and you're being very disloyal to Israel. And only weak people would say anything other than that. Jewish voters have overwhelmingly voted for Democrats for decades. 
A point made by Florida Democrat Ted Deutsch, who has served on several local and national Jewish organizations throughout his career. Deutsch told CNN that Trump's comments traffic in anti-Semitic tropes and put U.S. Jews in danger at a time of rising anti-Semitism. When there is hatred and anti-Semitism, you only fuel that anti-Semitism when you throw out there, you just lob out there those kinds of anti-Semitic tropes. And here's the thing. The ADL has noted a 60% increase in anti-Semitic hate crimes, the largest increase since they started keeping track. Uh, it's very dangerous when the president says the kinds of things that he says. And by the way, let's also be clear. I'm not going to let the president of the United States tell me or the three quarters of the Jewish community in America who chose not to vote for him that we are in any way disloyal to him, to Israel, to our community or to anyone else. He should just knock it off. It's dangerous and he should know that. Trump appears to be appealing to his evangelical base more than to Jews. He also tweeted a quote from conservative radio host and conspiracy theory pusher Wayne Allen Root saying that Israeli Jews love Trump like he's the king of Israel and quote the second coming of God when American Jews don't know him or like him. Yesterday, while discussing the trade war with China, Trump looked up at the sky and said, I am the chosen one. NATO announced that two more U.S. service members were killed in combat in Afghanistan. The officials provided no details. Afghan officials announced the death toll in the suicide bomber attack on a weekend wedding celebration has risen to 80. The Islamic State group claimed responsibility for the attack in a minority Shiite Hazara neighborhood of the Afghan capital. I'm Eileen Alfandari. You're listening to Sojourner Truth on Pacifica Radio. We now go to our discussion with professor of history at Miami University, Mary Fredrickson. She's one of the editors of an anthology, Gendered Resistance, Women, Slavery, and the Legacy of Margaret Garner. Our guest is Mary E. Fredrickson. She is one of the editors, along with Dolores M. Walters, of a book, Gendered Resistance, Women's Slavery, and the Legacy of Margaret Garner. Of course, this is Margaret Prescott, host of Sojourner Truth. So, Mary, welcome. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be with you. Mary, before we get into some of the stories covered in this anthology, to have some context here for our listeners, I'd like to discuss a bit breeding states, because a lot of people are not aware of breeding states, and and I think it it really helps to give some sense of reality of of what it was like. And tell us what you know, what can you share with us about these breeding states? Well, I think one of the things that we wanted to look at in this particular volume were the stories of women who had um, been enslaved and who had been enslaved in a a sexualized way. And we focused on the story of Margaret Garner, which was um, and is really an archetypal story in the history of slavery. One of the books that followed Toni Morrison's Beloved, which of course is a fictional story of Margaret Garner's life, is a book called Modern Medea, and I think that um, Margaret Garner really, in many ways, was a modern Medea. I think the Margaret Garner story illustrates the breeding states. Probably Kentucky may not even be on that list of breeding states, states where, in fact, slave owners were having impregnating slave women on a regular basis to increase the number of slaves. I would argue that it happened in every state where slavery occurred. I think we have historical evidence that that happened across the board. And the Margaret Garner story certainly illustrates that. I mean, she bore several children who our historical evidence indicates were fathered by, if you can use that word, where the master had impregnated her. The stories in Gendered Resistance 
really revolve around the issue of sexual slavery. And I think that we see that for a number of reasons. One is sexual pleasure, one is sexual control, and probably the most significant is for reproduction. But I think that, you know, we can point to certain states where this may have been done in a more systematic way or even a more legalized way, but we can argue, I think, without any question that this was done in every state where enslaved women were held. I also wanted, before again getting into the Margaret Garner specific story, the general story of enslaved women and some of the challenges that they faced that perhaps were not faced, at least not in the same way, as the men. We do know a great deal about the abuse of women slaves, and particularly the sexual abuse of women slaves. I think that enslaved women in American history, and I say it sort of drawing out those words because I think that as we learn more and more about the history of slavery, one of the things that we know is that it changes. It changes over time, and it changes from the 1600s to the 1700s to the 1800s. And then, as we know, it, it's changed yet again to the, in the 1900s and in the 21st century. Women have faced a different set of circumstances as enslaved people. And this has often turned on intimate, sexualized violence of, of women and abuse of women, use of women use of women, as I said, for pleasure, for control, and for reproduction. I think it's a very difficult thing for for scholars to look at. I think it's a very difficult thing for the public to look at. I think it's a challenging area to address, to deal with. And if we talk about the historical imagination, I think for us it's often difficult to even imagine the level of torture and abuse that women faced and dealt with during enslavement. Another challenge that actually is mentioned quite a bit in this anthology has to do with mothers' concern for their children. I mean, even the children that were born basically as a result of of rape, of, of women being forced to acquiesce or having to acquiesce to this for a number of reasons, including protecting their children. But in looking at the numbers of men who were able to escape in greater numbers than the women, it seems to me as though I've heard so many stories that the because of their concern for their children, that women often uh, then try to escape in groups and, and figure out ways in which to escape with their children and other loved ones. So, And that wasn't necessarily a key consideration, or I'm sure it was a consideration, but in a different intensity for the men. We have evidence of women who escaped you know, someone like Harriet Tubman who escaped and came back again and again. I think we probably have underestimated the number of women who did escape with their children, often hiding them. There's evidence of women giving children laudanum or morphine to to quiet their cries, to make sure they were asleep during an escape. But the fact of the matter is, I think, I think you're absolutely correct, it made it more challenging and difficult for women to escape. No question about that. And it really points to the caregiving work that women always seem to be doing. And I thought as I was reading some of these stories, I also thought of women who are in prison today. Women, single mothers are the fastest growing population in the United States of people going into prison, although the numbers-wise the majority are men, I guess similar to the slave situation. And so many of those mothers are then trying to, from their prison cell, you know, find out about their children or somehow be involved in in the caregiving uh, of their children. And and the same for immigrant uh, mothers who 
today with the immigration laws, uh, you know, separating families in in such a tragic way. And in some instances, immigrant mothers being forced to basically give up their children, their American-born children, to foster care, to adoption when they are deported across the border. So we can see this thread. Absolutely. And one of the chapters in our anthology on gendered resistance by psychologist Kathy McDaniels Wilson deals with the psychological after effects of racialized sexual violence. And she bases this article on interviews she's done with over 800 imprisoned women in the state of Ohio. And she did these interviews over the last five or six years. So we're very much concerned in this anthology with working to make, to draw connections across time and look at the historical context for gendered resistance and also the contemporary context. This is Margaret Prescott, host of Sojourner Truth, and our guest is Mary E. Fredrickson, and she is one of the editors, along with Dolores M. Walters, of a book entitled Gendered Resistance, Women's Slavery and the Legacy of Margaret Garner, part of the series on slavery that we have been doing here on our show. So let us then get into Margaret Garner. Her name is in, in the title. Let's get into her story. For people who don't know who Margaret Garner is, tell us some of her background and what happened to her. We'll talk a little bit about the impact of her trial, but first just on her and her family. All right. Well, Margaret Garner was a slave woman who was born in the early part of the 19th century. She came of age on living on a plantation that was about 19 miles south of Cincinnati, Ohio, on the Kentucky side of the Ohio River. She lived there with her her children and her mother. She had married, although her marriage was not legally recognized. She had a husband named Robert Garner, and they together had one child, and um, she had several other children who we know from the census were marked by the color of their skin. So her first child, which we believe was conceived with her husband, was recorded in the census as being black. Her sub- Several of her subsequent children were recorded as being mulatto. Tell us the difference then at that time between black and, and mulatto. These tend to be relatively imprecise categories, but basically we feel pretty certain that her eldest son was conceived with her husband because it looked like he was um, had two parents who were African-American. The um, children who were mulatto were of mixed parentage, probably half African-American and half white. Many slave owners often turn to their slave women to have sexual relations at times when their wives were pregnant. Dolores Walters, in her wonderful introduction about Margaret Garner in our anthology, correlated the times when the slave owner's wife was pregnant with the times that Margaret Garner had borne these mixed-race children. Right. So then then tell us about um, Margaret Garner's plan to escape and uh, what happened. Okay. She made a plan with her husband, who at the time was working on a nearby plantation, and with his parents and with a number of other family members and friends who were in the area was a group of about 17 altogether who made a decision to escape um, going across the Ohio River on a 
sled, and it was in January. It was one of the coldest winters ever on record in in Cincinnati. When Margaret Garner and her family members escaped, they knew they would only stay in Cincinnati temporarily, and then they would have to go further north. And in order to escape from slavery in the U.S., they would, in fact, have to go into Canada. So her family was planning to go to Cincinnati, get into Ohio, but just stay there for a short period of time until they could be transported north. Basically, they were caught. They were so, caught. So th- this is the big not, sensation. Um, I mean, our, our listeners may not know that story. So tell us what happened right. um, well, during that capture. They successfully crossed the river. The river was frozen that night and quite solidly, and they were able to go across, get to the other side, and they went to what they thought was a safe house where they could stay the night before, or probably stay for a couple of days before they left to go further north. The master of of Margaret Garner's plantation left the plantation, got federal marshals to cross the river meet, or meet them in Cincinnati. They tracked the family. They went to the house where they were staying. They burst into the house. They had guns. They had weapons of all kinds, and they captured the family, and they um, and they arrested them. They were arrested by the marshals, and it was at that moment that Margaret Garner made the fateful decision to kill one of her children, her her young daughter, Mary, rather than have this child return to slavery. Was her, her intention to kill only that child, or did it ever emerge if her intention was really to kill all of her children rather than have them spend a life enslaved? Well, you know? the... Um, Apparently, the intention was to kill all of the children. She was not able to do that. Right. She had two sons with her and the, the baby. As I say, she was also pregnant at the time. This young child was described as very light skin with rosy cheeks. There was discussion about the um, the slave owner being incredibly upset at the death of this child. All of that, though, I say in with a bit of hesitation, because whose mouth those words came out of, we are not sure. Yeah. And, and you know, of course, that, that story and the impact of, of her trial, there was great interest in her trial and a, a lot of people being appalled uh, by that. But certainly we had heard of st- stories before, even of women who were enslaved uh, and giving birth on slave ships, fundamentally dis- making the decision to kill themselves and their children rather than than be enslaved. But Margaret Garner's story is certainly a very dramatic instance of that. And, and the fact that the trial itself was, you know, such a such a sensation. T- tell us a bit about the, the impact of it. And, and then I, I also want to, before we leave the Margaret Garner story, uh, looking at the clock, we're gonna, I do want to get more in depth about Elizabeth, Elizabeth Clark Gaines. But Toni Morrison, uh, the um, Nobel laureate, in her book, Beloved, a lot of people make the contrast and the comparison with the story she tells in Beloved, where Seth, um, one of the characters uh, kills a child, and that it's portrayed as a kind of a mercy killing. Uh, Mary, Absolute, right, absolutely, and you know, Toni Morrison based the story *Beloved* on the Margaret Garner case. Um, she read of the Margaret Garner case actually in a a wonderful book of documents called *Black Women in White America* which um, historian Gerda Lerner edited back in the early 70s. It came out, I think, in 1972. 
and um, Toni Morrison, everyone was using that book. I can see it on my shelf now, but Gerda Lerner put these documents together, and one of the documents she included in that book was a very short piece from one of the Cincinnati papers about the Margaret Garner case. And Toni Morrison said later that she had read that story, it had resonated with her, and that then she wrote the book Beloved based on that story. So I think that, you know, Seth, the character of Seth, clearly is based on the Margaret Garner story. Um, I, I wanted to say I have um, the Cincinnati papers, the New York papers, um, were just filled with articles about the Margaret Garner trial. Um, I have one of the clippings here, and it says, from January 29th, arrest of fugitive slaves. A slave mo mother murders her child rather than see it return to slavery. And the article begins, great excitement existed throughout the city the whole of yesterday in consequence of the arrest of a party of slaves and the murder of her child by a slave mother while the officers were in the act of making the arrest. Um, another one goes, stampede of slaves, a tale of horror, um, an arrest by the U.S. Marshal, a deputy U.S. Marshal shot, a Negro child's throat cut from ear to ear, by its father or mother and others wounded. So, you know, there, by its father or mother, that's a, that's a curious and tantalizing headline. I, I think there, there was a lot of sensationalism around the case, around the arrest, around the, the death of the child, and around the, um, the trial itself. The trial went on for quite a long time. One people filled the streets. Of, you wonder how people had so much time on their hands. But every morning, when Margaret Garner was brought from the jail to the courthouse, the streets were lined with people curious to see her. Follow people followed this trial. It it, it was. For many, many years, it was maybe forever, it was the most infamous trial around slavery in the in the country. Yeah, and, and ironically, and um, Dolores uh, Walters, who co-edited this book with you, I mean, she writes that, and I find it really ironic, that um, Margaret Garner wasn't tried for her child's murder but that the judge, who was then a federal commissioner, overruled the state's right to prosecute for murder, but upheld the fugitive slave law, right? The Fugitive Slave Act supporting slavery, and that the family was then sent back to Kentucky. Well, yes, and even more than that, the, there was a fight between the state of Ohio and the state of Kentucky about what to do with Margaret Garner. Ohio wanted to try her for murder. Now, I, there was an irony there because they wanted to try her for murder, and one of the rationales for that was that if she was tried for murder, she could be kept in the state of Ohio and not return to to slavery, Cincinnati in particular, Ohio in, in, in as a, the state, but Cincinnati was so close to Kentucky, so a thousand feet across the river, and you were in, depending on which way you were going, you were either in a free state or a slave state. And abolitionists in Kentucky, and national abolitionists, one of them was Lucy Stone, who was a suffragist and an abolitionist. She came to Cincinnati for the trial. In fact, she was the one person who pointed out the sexual abuse of Margaret Garner and the sexual slavery in which Margaret Garner had been held. So there was a struggle between the state of Ohio wanting to try her for murder, partially as a way to keep her in Ohio in a free state and not have her sent back into slavery. 
um, versus Kentucky, where the argument was that she could not be tried for murder because she was enslaved. And in fact, she would have to be charged with destruction of property. Mm, yeah, so that, that was how they thought of that baby, you know, more more as property. Our guest is Mary uh, Fredrickson. She, along with Dolores M. Walters, they uh, have edited a new book entitled Gendered Resistance, Women's Slavery, and the Legacy of Margaret Garner. And we've been uh, talking about uh, Margaret uh, Garner, uh, known for having killed one of her children rather than re- having her child uh, returned to slavery after she escaped and, and was caught. What I would like to do now is to go on and discuss a bit. I'm looking at the clock and there are like at least three other things. There were like maybe 10 other things I wanted to talk with you about, uh, Mary, but the, the time is flying uh, to talk a, a bit about the story of Elizabeth Clark Gaines because she waited and waited and was quite patient in plotting and planning uh, to not only get out of slavery herself, but for her children. Uh, could you sum that up for us? Well, it's it, this is an incredible story of an incredible woman that is included um, in the essay that I wrote for the book. It's I called it A Mother's Arithmetic, and it's really Elizabeth Clark Gaines' um, journey from slavery to freedom. Elizabeth Clark Gaines crossed the same river that Margaret Garner did almost 40 years before Margaret Garner's crossing. Elizabeth Clark Gaines crossed the Ohio to freedom in Ohio in 1817. And she is a woman who was born in Virginia in the late 18th century. And then she, in 1783, actually, and she was named Betty, which actually was the most common slave name for girl children. And she came to, was brought to Kentucky by the man who enslaved her. It was a man named John Clark. He had inherited her from his father. He brought her, her mother, and a number of other of her family members to Kentucky when he migrated there to settle in the very beginning of the 19th century. He bought land in Kentucky um, near a town called Cynthiana and settled there. He also brought his three children by his first marriage. His wife had died on the way from Virginia to Kentucky, there's evidence, strong evidence, that he had intercourse with Betty, the young slave girl. She was 14 years old. He was... And he was quite older. He was in his 30s. And she became pregnant. And so by the time they got to Kentucky and settled first in Lexington, she was pregnant and then gave birth to her first child of a a baby named, she named Michael. She had four more children by this slave owner, and they lived together. He never remarried. There's evidence that she had a very close relationship with his two daughters and with his son from the first marriage. And then he died, finally, I, I argue that she had been really waiting for him to die. Um, and she I also made sure that in his will, she and three of her four children were manumitted, were given manumission papers or freedom papers. That was the linchpin that he did not free one of the children, and he knew that that would then tie her to that place. Absolutely. Um, yeah. Mm-hmm. The cruel irony, on the one hand, his giving her her freedom, he, he gave her that on the one hand. With the other hand, he pulled it back because her youngest child, the youngest child, was kept in slavery. And um, 
he was to be, according to the will, granted his slavery if he behaved well. You're listening to a one-hour special with writer and historian Mary Fredrickson. We're going to take a short station break. When we return, more about the collection of stories inspired by escaped slave Margaret Garner entitled Gendered Resistance, Women, Slavery, and the Legacy of Margaret Garner. Floating above the crackle of bones, stepping in dry water, singing your question. How do I heal from this indelible wound? Ah, we wondered when you would ask. You have grieved now for four hundred years, generations memorizing the failed self, drugged by your technology, tenderness left impotent, dancing in shackles you call handcuffs. Why do you dance our death instead of our life? Step into the water, child. Let the shackles slip from your soul. From the first ship to the last whip was for this moment. Our bodies were taken to render us unconscious, ourselves filled with fear, and yes, we slept through our beliefs. But now you hold the seed. You remember? You know our full nature, not just the pain. Walk that memory. You submitted to the collective way. Walk that memory. Your law was the sacredness of life. Recall that sustenance. Walk that memory. Water this seed. The water connects you, blending memory and tomorrow. Womb water. It is your awakening now that we are waiting for. Your awakening. Your awakening. You're listening to Sojourner Truth. I'm your host, Margaret Prescott. Our guest is Miami history professor Mary Fredrickson. We are discussing the anthology Gendered Resistance, Women's Slavery, and the Legacy of Margaret Garner. I wanted to just quickly ask you, because I, I do want to get onto the quadroon balls and uh, Chica da Silva and a few other things, but when they were in Cincinnati, um, in Ohio, which was a, a free state now, in 1829, there uh, racial tension arose and, and a, a lot of threats and, and riots by white mobs against uh, black people, many of whom fled to Canada, and then again in the 1840s. And I wondered if, if you and your research knew why those particular years, I mean, 1829, what, what was going on that caused this thing to come to a head? At the time, the the African-American free black um, population of Cincinnati was quite small. It was about, it was somewhere between two and three thousand people. And it was, it made up a very small percentage of the overall population of the city. But having said that, there was tremendous fear that more and more slaves would escape from the South, 
come to Cincinnati and settle. And you mentioned that um, Betty, who once she was free, insisted on being called Elizabeth Clark. And then when she married Elizabeth Clark Gaines, she and her family prospered. They did prosper. They were business owners. There were opportunities for free blacks in the city of Cincinnati. The white population knew that and didn't like it one bit. And they were absolute, you know, the, 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 horrible irony of this is many of them were abolitionists but they they liked the idea of freedom in the abstract but having thousands and thousands of free slaves come to the city was something that they did not want to see happen at the time of the first riot racially based riot against free blacks in cincinnati half the African-American population of Cincinnati left. About 1,500 people left and went to Canada and settled. Elizabeth Clark Gaines and her family stayed. They held their ground there and waited it out. And things did get somewhat better. But as you say, in 1840, there was another major riot. And, and, And in fact, the white mob set up a cannon on the street, which is quite remarkable, and and fired at black people. Just just an amazing story there. But I I was also very uh, moved, and again, this is Margaret Prescott, host of Sojourner Truth, and our guest is Mary E. Fredrickson. She, along with Dolores M. Walters, uh, edited the book Gendered Resistance, Women's Slavery, and the Legacy of Margaret Garner. You know, there's not a lot out there on um, women's resistance to slavery, and this book certainly is one of them. I was very moved by the story that is uh, told actually in your chapter, Mary Fredrickson, in the book about Margaret, about Elizabeth Clark Gaines' first grandchild, Peter Clark. And he gave just an amazing speech because he became an orator and an organizer, you know, on slavery and citizenship and workers' rights and and much more, as you say. I just wanted to quote something from a speech that he gave in 1873, where he says, I do not forget the prejudice of the American people. I could not if I would. I am sore from soul to crown with its blows. It stood by the bedside of my mother and intensified her pain as she bore me. And it further says, it poisons the food I eat, the water I drink, the air I breathe. It dims the sunshine of my days and deepens the darkness of my nights. It hampers me in every relation of life and business and politics and religion as a father or as a husband. It haunts me walking or riding, waking or sleeping. And then he further says, Hercules could have as easily forgotten the poisoned shirt which scorched his flesh as I can forget the prejudice of the American people. I, I was so struck by that, uh, Mary Fredrickson. I am of African descent myself from, from the Caribbean and I thought that Peter, back then, captured so much, the, uh, of course, the horror back then, but also the, uh, to, to a, a much more limited degree, of course, of the residuals of having to deal with racial prejudice and, and oppression. And, and when he was alive, the kind of terror that people went through. And, and here he was, um, the grandson of this uh, woman who had had calculated and and made quite a fight to free herself absolutely and her her sons and then her her grandchildren became just uh, all of them were absolutely amazing people peter clark a remarkable orator he spoke all around the state of Ohio and was very connected nationally. He became the head of the black schools in Cincinnati. His uncle, one of Elizabeth Clark Gaines' children, had founded the black schools in Cincinnati, arguing that if there were going to be schools for white children, there had to be schools for black children. These were people who were absolutely saw education, business, religion, 
the church, the school, and the home as the foundation of American life for blacks, for whites. They spoke so powerfully about equality and opportunity and fairness and justice. Quite a a remarkable legacy there of Elizabeth Mm -hmm. Clark Gaines. I also wanted to speak with you about the Quadroon Bowls and just and the role that it played. The chapter in the book that deals with this is by our colleague um, Diana Williams, and um, she wrote her dissertation on the Quadroon Bowls. She actually has a book coming out um, soon on the Quadroon Bowls. And she included a a chapter in the anthology, Gendered Resistance. She talks about these balls that were held in the early 19th century in many cities, actually, in the U.S., but the most famous city was New Orleans. I'll just read a short excerpt that she includes. A typical description of such balls appeared in the Providence Gazette on August 7, 1820. Every Saturday night is ushered in with splendid quadroon balls. None but quadroon ladies, that is, women of mixed blood, and white gentlemen are allowed to attend. Those ladies are prohibited from marrying a white man, and they are too proud and high-minded to marry one of their own color. Consequently, in this land of sensuality, that is, New Orleans, they become openly, without any degradation, kept mistresses, and will, it is said, while engaged, if it be for a week, a month, or a year, be true to their employers. It is also said to be the common practice of the mothers of such daughters to educate them for the purpose of pleasure and barter them away during their minority to the best bidder. And they were often referred to as left-handed marriages because clearly a lot of of these men, um, men of means, you know, had their own uh, wives and and families. In the case of the Quadroon Balls, often these... um, these women were second wives. They were shadow. They had shadow families in many cases, and this was incredibly prevalent. One of the things Diana Williams does in this chapter that I think is so powerful is that she examines how the um, quadroon balls have sort of had a second life in American visual culture in recent decades. There are films about the quadroon balls now. Anne Rice's second novel, A Feast of All Saints, features the quadroon balls. So there's interest in these stories and, quite frankly, in the sexuality and the intensity of these stories. Right. One of the questions that uh Diana Williams asked is, is how, how much power did these women have and did their families have? You know, because on the one hand, these women can be seen as caught in this system. Absolutely, they were, this abusive system. On the other hand, their their mothers leveraged this life for them, which in 1820, probably in qualitative terms, was a better life for them than they would have had as an enslaved woman who didn't occupy this particular liminal status as a quadroon. I was interested that included in this anthology that you edited, one of the editors of, is a a chap entitled Resurrecting Chica de Silva. And I, I first learned about her actually spending some time in... Um, Guatemala and Venezuela, actually. And Chica da Silva, the television (laughs) soap opera, is huge. I mean, everybody wanted to run home to be able to to watch Chica da Silva. And she was an enslaved woman, just to uh, tell our listeners, who was born in 18th century Brazil, who was freed and and got involved with a very wealthy uh, man. And all of the soap opera is based on Chica da Silva and her manipulations and her uh, 
you know, relationships with those enslaved beneath her, but also that here was this black woman wielding um, at least the fictionalized version is portrayed as, as quite a lot of power. Um, right. wh- why include her in this anthology, that story? Well, because one of the things that we're looking at, or I mean, we are looking at various forms of gendered resistance. And mm-hmm. Tika De Silva, De Silva was certainly an example of a woman who resisted and carved out a very powerful and um, precise kind of life for herself. Her form of resistance was uh, to marry this wealthy man, have a legal marriage. She had 13 children by him. She inherited his estate, and she, um, she became very powerful. And she used her sexual power um, to turn the tables on the system. And I think, you know, one of the things that Raquel de Souza, who is an anthropologist and a scholar who trained at the University of Texas, Austin, and lives and works in Brazil and teaches there, one of the things that she wanted to do was to connect the modern soap opera about Chico de Silva and the actual historical figure who is a very complicated historical woman. Just before we leave it, because we, we do have to mention Harriet Tubman going going back quite a bit, because the Harriet Tubman, there was a whole big deal for women who were enslaved that they should not leave their children, that they have to stay with their children uh, no matter what. Of course, some women did try to escape without their children, but a lot of women tried to escape with their children. Now, Harriet Tubman, when she first escaped, she left her, I think, her husband and, and some other members of her family. And I guess a case can be made that part of her going back and, and, and so much involvement in the Underground Railroad, of course, was helping others, but also trying to get others of her family members out into free states. Uh, Mary Fredrickson. Absolutely. And um, another of the chapters in the book by Vita Smith-Tucker really looks at women as secret agents on the Underground Railroad and women who worked as abolitionists who in certain cases left their children, in other cases were single women who did not have children, but who were, like Harriet Tubman, absolutely committed to getting as many enslaved people out of the South as possible. She looks particularly at the story of Harriet Tubman, but also at the story of Mary Ellen Pleasant and Mary Bowser, three women who were incredibly deeply involved and committed to working as agents to get people out of of the South. There is a chapter in the book on art and memory, healing, body, mind, and spirit. I'm delighted to see one of the contributors is S. Pearl Sharp. She actually is part of our team here uh, at Sojourner Truth. She does our Sojourner Goes to the Movies. Justin, in wrapping things up, tell us a, a bit about the importance of that chapter in in this anthology. Well, I'll tell you, when we decided to put together this book, Dolores Walters was working at the National Underground Railroad Freedom Center in Cincinnati. I have taught for a long time at Miami University in the Department of History and Women's Studies up there. And we wanted to bring together a group of scholars, and we wanted to engage our students and people in the community. And one of the ways that we thought we could do this most effectively, talking about gendered resistance, talking about sexual slavery, talking about intimate partner violence. How do you talk about these things and pull people into the discussion? And we felt very strongly that art and film and dance and storytelling and music were ways to do this. So we um, 
asked Carolyn Maslumi, who's a very um, well-known quilt artist, um, Nyla Randall Bellinger, a choreographer and incredible dancer out of um, Boston and New York, came down with her dance company and performed a dance she had choreogra- choreographed called Dancing Beloved. Um, Olivia Cousins and S. Pearl Sharp came and showed the most recent film that S. Pearl Sharp had made about um, the um, Middle Passage from Africa to uh, the Americas. Yeah, her book, the heal, her her DVD, the Healing Passage, the film. The Healing right. Passage mm-hmm. that was shown. Our students responded to that very powerfully, and um, and then. Finally, in this symposium, we had Catherine Roma, who is the um, director of Muse, which is the an incredible women's chorus in Cincinnati, women's choir. And um, they performed a, a special uh, list of uh, pieces um, around the issue okay. of gendered resistance. Yeah. So we found that we could pull students in, we could full, pull community members in, and that was our goal in having the symposium, and that really has been our goal in putting together the anthology. So it's a real opportunity to talk to you about it, and I hope many of your readers particularly students and people who teach will spread the word about this about this book. Yeah, such such an important story as well. Mary E. Fredrickson, one of the editors of Gendered Resistance, Women's Slavery, and the Legacy of Margaret Garner. Thank you uh, for doing this uh, piece of work and, and editing this anthology along with Dolores and Walters, and thank you so very much for joining us. Thank you, Margaret. It's been a pleasure. We're out of time. I'd like to thank our guest and the entire Sojourner Truth team. If you'd like a copy of today's show, please contact the Pacifica Radio Archives at 1-800-735-0230. Go online to pacificaradioarchives.org. This is your host, Margaret Prescott. Thank you for listening.
At KBOO, we think that all communities deserve to be fully informed on the policies and decisions that will impact their lives, and we need your help to make that happen. We're looking for citizen journalists to help collect, report, and broadcast the news. Do you think that there are groups that are underrepresented or marginalized by the mainstream media? Are you aware of social, political, or environmental activities that don't have adequate visibility? Are there important issues in your town or region that aren't getting coverage? This is your chance to give a voice to the voiceless. You don't have to have experience, and you don't have to come into KBOO's Portland studio. You can contribute from wherever you live. If you have some basic writing skills and a desire to get the word out, we want you. Just send an email with your idea and contact information to newsdirector, that's all one word, newsdirector at kboo.fm, and include the words citizen journalist in the subject line, and the news team will contact you. Once again, send that email to newsdirector at kboo.fm. KBOO Community Radio is a proud co-sponsor of Project Northwest. Friday, September 6th at 10 p.m. at the Atlantis Lounge inside Mississippi Pizza in Portland. Project Northwest is a local zine that helps promote local hip-hop and R&B artists with an emphasis on showcasing artists that identify as Black and POC, LGBTQIA+, women, and artists who experience disabilities. This event will showcase Kayla J., Lil Swag, Zenith, and Matt Randyland. The show will be hosted by Harvey Bird. Again, that's Project Northwest, Friday, September 6th at 10 p.m. at the Atlantis Lounge, 3552 North Mississippi in Portland. This is a 21 and over event. More information can be found at kboo.fm on the right side of the homepage under Community Events. And this is KBOO Portland. It's 9 a.m. and it's time for One Land, Many Voices. At 10, we'll hear Voices for the Animals. At 10.30, film at 11. Rounding out the hour at 11. Um, rounding, mm, and then we'll round out the morning at 11 with the radio zine. You can hear all this later on. Again, or if you missed any part, at kboo.fm or through iTunes or Google Play. <laughs> 